Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you very much, Mr. Intro Guy. We're back again this week, the weekend in April the 27th. 2018. I'm Brendan. I'm here with Mark. Mark, you've had an interesting week. You were telling me off here. What has been happening? I've had a few interesting things happen, Brendan. The first one was um, we talked about the surgeries that we do, and and I've started to note notice a bit of a pattern that we talk about things on this podcast, and then I end up doing them very shortly afterwards. We had a rat today with a um a very large uterine tumor that we had to take out. Um, unfortunately, it had invaded the bladder wall and we weren't able to dissect it and um, the rat didn't make it through the surgery. But um, but it is a, another example of, um, I don't know, this synergy between the podcast and the things I do at work. Ah, well, I had a bit of a road trip, as you know, Mark, um, fairly recently, and that was quite interesting. I went down to give a presentation to the to the country division in Western Victoria. And that was really good. They're really um, great bunch of people down there. And I managed to spend a little bit of time taking a couple of pics there, Mark, but I wasn't feeling it. I was out there with my camera looking at the ocean and wandering down some of the tracks there and trying to get those pics. And you know, I think you know what it's like, isn't it? Some days you just don't feel it with the with the pictures there but i think you did mention to me that you have to have the bad days to have the good days don't you mark um and that was a bad day of, taking pictures. the roller coaster of life brendan you don't know the good days unless you've <laughs> had the bad days and and it is a thing with photography isn't it i've i've um uh, i went through as the, i got the good camera and the big lens and everything was amazing and sharp and in focus um but then you start to raise your your, your standards and you you know, you want the light to be better. You want the the story on the lens, on the on the um, image to be better. And you do have those days when you just cannot draw it all together. Yes, and that was one of those days, all those mornings. But it was still good fun. I mean, I do find it a bit sort of meditative, um, just getting out there, and it forces me to sit and have a look at the scene. And and um, I think that's one of the main reasons why I do it, just for the making me sit and enjoy things a bit in nature. So that was sort of my visit down Western District in Victoria here. And uh, actually, before we get on to a couple of other little items, I forgot to mention our competition, Mark, um, our email competition where somebody will win a signed book, which will be signed by both of us probably, Mark, and it will be posted anywhere in the world. So we want people just to send in uh, a hello and, and ideally a little story about what's been happening in their veterinary world and just send it to vetgurus at gmail.com and we'll be picking one fairly soon um, because the entries, the flood mark, the flood has slowed down as far as the entries, so we need a few more entries. Um, <laughs> it's, all, it's always good when that tidal wave eases up a bit and you can manage it. <laughs> That's right. So we do need a few more to come in before we can make that final decision on who will win that book. So please drop us a line, say hello, even if you don't want to enter that competition. And um, we always like to hear from our listeners and potentially any topics you want us to cover as well, just send us a note. Um, Yeah, so um, speaking of interesting 
cases or difficult cases here. I had a quite difficult one yesterday, which was a, a guinea pig mark that had a horrible facial tumour that grew to a size of about eight centimetres that I removed about uh, probably a month, month and a half ago, and I managed to dissect it out. And it then represented about a week ago with a huge ventral um, chin mass, which I was expecting it to be that tumour that was recurred that had recurred and it ended up being a, a massive abscess but the difficulty was it was not in a nice area so I was looking at partially ligating jugulars and I had thyroids in the way and all sorts of and facial nerve that I had to push out of the way and it was a it was a nightmare surgery mark and I think it took about 70 minutes or so trying to remove slowly dissect everything out of the way um which I managed to do, and I was quite surprised that the guinea pig was up and eating sort of um, 20 minutes after I'd done the surgery, but I was still not that hopeful with it. And, yeah, it did um, end up dying overnight or very early the next morning. And the frustrating thing is this is one of the rescue guinea pig um, shelters that we deal with, and a shout-out to Lindley if she um, is um, listening. And... um, she really wears a heart on the sleeve, old Lindley. She has probably 150 guinea pigs at any one time, I think, that she's looking after. And every one of those 150 rescue guinea pigs are, are special guinea pigs. And if any one of them dies, she, she really takes it to heart. So she's always a bit of a blubbering mess with most of them, unfortunately. But um, And, yeah, she um, tried to nurse this one overnight and it um, did end up dying early this morning so very frustrating for all of us around but I you know for it and and one of the things she mentioned to me was you know should I've done the surgery and yeah I wouldn't hesitate going back in with this one even though it seemed apparently normal it had a massive probably 10 centimeter ventral abscess that um, needed removing because it would have become a problem because of all the structures that were involved with it so it's difficult, isn't it, Mark, with these frustrating cases? I mean, they're a challenge. I'd love doing these sorts of surgeries, especially if they if they survive it. But um, we can't win them all, can we, Mark? Can we, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I've been, while you've been talking there, I just the, the uh, connection has just like for a second dropped out three times and I was just so afraid we're going to have the same sort of technical issues we've had a couple of times before. But I'm back with you, Brendan, and it is difficult with these um, these cases and, and um, it's an interesting thing because um, I have, uh, as you know, we... we um, both have mentees in the ABA's mentoring program and I have a new graduate who works with me now, the wonderful Dr Alyssa, and, um, and it is, it is uh, something that when you begin to do work with uh, avian and exotic patients, you are confronted with um, the risk that they're not going to make it. They often come to us when their problems are severe and they deal, you know, they're, they're they're more fragile than our robust companion, routine, traditional companion animals. So um, it is an. Uh, uh, but I think the key thing I would I would say to you, Brendan, as I say to Alyssa, is that um, almost invariably I feel very confident that if you do not go ahead with these procedures, this is almost the question I ask myself: If I go ahead with this procedure, 
am I making this animal's life worse or better? And an animal like you described, that guinea pig, was with that sort of a, um, a structure in its mouth was certainly going to suffer for a little bit and pass away. And its only chance of surviving was if you could remove it. Now, the fact that you that it didn't make it um, doesn't change the fact that that was the best option at that time. Yes, and by the sound of it, similar with your little rat here as well, Mark. So, yeah, a um, bit like our photography, isn't it? Um, we have the bad days as well as the good days with the particular with our patients as well. I'm going to jump into news, Mark, because I think our main topic, as usual, will be quite involved, and I'm going to quiz you today, Mark, about our main topic. So I'm going to jump into news topic number one, which is a kangaroo that wouldn't hop which zoo visitors didn't like because it wasn't doing kangaroo type things, so they stoned it to death, Mark. Have you read this particular article? I've I have read this article. And, I've, and it, I know I, we're laughing, but it is so, it, I think we're laughing because it's, it's so sad that um, it's, it's scary. And, and I know I, talk, I sometimes talk about these sort of topics to first-year veterinary students when we talk about the pros and cons of zoos and and you know people's perceptions are that you'll turn up to a zoo and if you're looking at a kangaroo that you'll expect to see what a kangaroo does is hop around and if it doesn't hop around apparently in this zoo anyway that um, someone picked up a rock supposedly and they started stoning this um, kangaroo and it ended up ended up dying because some adults um, saw the kangaroo sleeping and then they picked up rocks to throw at them um, the zoo one of the zookeepers said and it was in well, it doesn't really matter where it was in it was in a, a zoo in China it could potentially happen anywhere potentially I suppose um, and by the time the can uh, the zookeepers rescued the kangaroo from the crowd um, his her foot was nearly severed and was placed on the drip um, and ended up surviving for several days before succumbing to in internal bleedings and the sad thing is on on the um, necropsy they found it had a ruptured kidney um, and other internal injuries there and um, it's not the only time that this sort of thing has happened apparently um, um, reading through the news article last summer for example investors involved in a dispute dispute with a zoo in another province released a donkey into the tiger pen um, for some <laughs> unknown reason with predictable results. The donkey didn't survive. Um, and the stoning didn't end with that particular death. Just a few weeks later, visitors, I think in the same zoo, um, attacked and injured a five-year-old kangaroo for similar reasons. Um, and fortunately, that one, that one survived. So... Um, it's a bit of a sad world out there for some of these animals in the zoos, Mark, but um, I think it gets back to the old, you know, um, the perceptions of, hey, you, 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 you go into a zoo to look at animals and, and, and don't think that just because it's a, a kangaroo enclosure that, one, you'll see a kangaroo. If it wants to hide, let it hide and um, otherwise um, feel privileged if you do get to see that animal up close. That's the way I, I, I view it these days. You're about to say something, Matt. I was just going to almost say the same thing as you, that um, that we do have to cultivate that uh, that this is a place for animals and it's a privilege if you get to see them at all um, and even more of a privilege if you get to experience some of their natural behavior and they are not here to gratify you um and um and i you know there's regularly those pictures on 
my Facebook feed of, um, you know, a dolphin that people that might be washed up and a bunch of people on a beach are uh, playing with it, getting selfies with it or whatever and um, uh, a, uh, you know, a variety of things that people do where they lack empathy um, and place their base entertainment desires above the well-being of the animal and, yeah, it breaks my heart, Brendan. I have a heart broken at the moment. <laughs> well... Speaking of um, depressing subjects, um, what um, let's talk about news item number two, which you have, which is a, an interesting topic. This one, I know, if ever there was um, a a, a, a lead into the next topic that um, you know was to take us down a bit deeper, um, <laughs> this is this article um, is, talks about uh, um, extinction, and I've got a couple of quick articles to talk about with respect to extinction the first one um the first one is this popular animals face a higher rate uh, a higher risk of extinction um and it's an uh, the, the article argues that this is an unfortunate um consequence uh, a, a paradox of the influence of marketing that being a popular animal um can be a double-edged sword that species that are charismatic and therefore Appear in marketing and advertising campaigns, and um, and on uh, you know Shark Week on uh, Animal Planet, um, that the uh, the study sends, tends to suggest that these charismatic animals that uh, that um, are everywhere give people the false impression that they're doing okay. That there's the concept now of a virtual population um, that uh, that people are influenced by the ubiquity of animals in advertising and in the media to assume that um, that they're, they're, uh, there's quite a lot of them around and that they're thriving um, uh, rather than struggling in real life. And there's a bunch of species, the typical ones, the big cats, elephants, um, giraffes, um, polar bears, uh, wolves and gorillas um, that uh, that people routinely, when uh, asked, uh, overestimate how they're going in the wild, and this virtual population theory seems to be the reason. Um, and this article also mentions your wonderful Lacoste shirt, Brendan, um, where uh, <laughs> where um, uh, um, uh, the people feel like they're doing a good thing by indulging in something like this um and this may be the way um you know in marketing where animals get a benefit from their image being placed on an, onto an item where um they can actually benefit from their them getting into the public perception so i think um you know we'll have to get a few more of those lacoste t-shirts for you brendan oh thank you and um just don't get me the color you got me last time Mark. thank you very much um Yes, n another another um, very upbeat story, wasn't it? Which follows on. Uh, oh, well, I have a story that follows on from that one um, quite nicely and another sad one, and that's about Toby the Cat, Mark. Toby the Cat. Poor Tobias. In North Carolina, and Toby the Cat's owners didn't want him anymore, Mark, and they gave him to another family. But Toby thought perhaps had been a mistake and the seven-year-old little pussycat took off and he slowly made his way back the 12-mile trek back to their house and 
unfortunately, his old family wasn't terribly thrilled to see him and they took him to the local shelter to have him put to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, um, aren't humans um, fantastic, Mark? Um, But the shelter, it is a good news story in in Mark because the shelter called up the SPCA of America and asked if they could take him in and find him a new family, and they did. And um, interesting, reading through this story, Toby also has um, FIV, feline immunodeficiency virus, Mark. So I wonder if he got into any fights on the way back there, Mark, and infected any other cats and when he was getting back to his family that um, didn't want him anymore. So the old and animals for life certainly didn't apply for that um, family, did it, Mark? So, um, yeah, that's new story number three. That's all I'm going to really say about that one, Mark. I'm a little bit depressed yet excited that he did find a, 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 I, I, a home. I have got to take the positive out of it, Brendan, that um, that uh, they, they were able to um, find a home where he could live without um, being shunted away to somewhere else. It's it's a good news story. I'm taking it as a good news story. But, but I have to finish lowering the tone once again, as I do, with um, an article from The Conversation uh, um, concerning the, the um, recent research on the consequences of the 2016 bleaching event on uh, the um, northern part of the Great Barrier Reef. And there's been um, some really uh, in-depth research published in Nature um, which shows that um, the events of the last couple of years have absolutely dwarfed all preceding events. Those two outstanding ones in recent history um, was uh, in 1998 and 2002-3, but these ones in 2016 and then again in 2017 have smashed those previous ones um, in terms of their severity. And... um, and amazingly, uh, in the northern part of our barrier reef in 2016, there was a 30% loss of the corals uh, on those reefs and then being smashed again in 2017 with another bleaching event resulted in a further 20% loss. That's 50% of the corals um, are gone from the uh, those uh, northern barrier reef sections. Um, It was interesting that they identified fast-growing and um, uh, tabletop-type corals as um, suffering the worst of the catastrophic die-off. And this actually changes the three-dimensional character of many of the reefs. And this then in turn uh, makes it more difficult for the reef to cope with higher temperatures in that such corals provide, have a protective role for some of the more delicate corals so these once again this is not good news um i've i've had the good fortune as i've bragged to you many times brendan of um diving some of the best coral reefs in the world and taking photos of them and and i feel that i've got to do that now because i don't think i'll be able to do it in just a few years time the rate at which we're losing these things the um the very special things in our natural world, um, there'll be things I'll be able to tell my grandchildren about, um, but um, I don't think they will be able to see them, Brendan. It's, I'm sorry to end on such a <laughs> note. Yes, it is depressing, and I must admit, the uh, I've uh, haven't uh, been diving on the the these reefs. I've certainly snorkeled and, and seen the Great Barrier Reef. Um, 
sort of a fair few years ago since I've, I've, I've been there, but, yeah, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen and I must admit and I, and I recommend to anybody who, who – who is thinking of having a look at the um, Great Barrier Reef off Australia's um, eastern northern coasts um, to to go and see it because it is um, no matter how it's one of those things, isn't it? A bit like seeing some of these animals in the wild. Unless you actually see the reef up up close, you just cannot describe how amazing it is. Yeah, um, and we better get and have um, get out there and have a look at it now before it is too late. Yeah, that is depressing, isn't it, Mark? Um, I think we should get on to our main topic, which potentially could de- be depressing as well. well before it, before but, we do that, I've got a little um, uh, a little um, review to do for you, Brendan. Ah, oh, that's right. You did you did mention that? Yes, and it's quite a quirky review. It's not something that we normally review, Mark, but. Um, I'm going to run with it, uh, and I will okay. sit back we'll and listen, and then um, interject um, depending on um, where you end up with this. So, what is your review, Mark? My review is of the current state of basketball in Australia. So, I want to start with a little bit of history. Won't go for long. Um, basketball in Australia has always been like you know a fifth or sixth tier sport. And, um, and there was a little bit of an explosion in the early 1990s where um, the NBL took off and there were some um, massive uh, crowds at, uh, at uh, NBL games and television rights were um, argued about. But in the couple that's, of decades... That's when I was, sorry, Matt, that's when I was playing, you realise. Yes, I do um, realise that. I think that's and I don't, why, the, the, the why young, I was doing so the, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. The correlation is not lost on me. Um, but, then, <laughs> but then since you retired, the um, the game has fallen into, well, let's shall we say um, more difficult times until this last 12 months. It's just been outstanding. And I've got four points, four issues, I suppose, um, that I think mark um, Australian basketball five. I'm going to make it five uh, that uh, – Tell us we're headed in the right direction. The first one. Okay, was, number one. Number one was when Melbourne United took the Oklahoma City Thunder to the wire and lost by only one basket at the beginning of the year when the uh, best in the NBL went over and played a trial game against an NBA team. That was amazing. Number two is the announcement that there will be an NBA game. Uh, between two in the regular season held in Melbourne next year. Um, and they are changing, I think it's the actual um, Etihad Stadium. They're going to, there's this wonderful picture online of it, an artist's impression of Etihad with a basketball court in the middle and 50,000 people roaring um, as the two NBA teams go at it. Are you planning to attend that match? I, I, I've priced up the uh, box seats at the front, Brendan. We'll see what happens. Uh, well, when when you get close to um, potentially booking those, um, let me know because I might um, I might tag along. That would be fun. The third thing um, is, um, well, my tip for the current NBA Rookie of the Year, Ben Simmons, who grew up in Melbourne and Newcastle. What's what? That's a little bit weird too, Brendan. Um, yes. And and he's, uh, I think he's the future of the NBA. Um, he he will be a an Australian name to follow for years to come. Fourth and penultimately, Andrew Bogut of the uh, thirteen year NBA 
um, career, has just signed with the Sydney Kings. He's going to play for the next two years for the Sydney Kings. An interesting side fact, he's the third oldest rookie to uh, play, like, in the NBL, the third oldest person to start an NBL career. Um, but it will be spectacular, spectacular two years. Um, and the last point, oh, I've got my form here and I've forgotten my last. Oh, yes, today's Joe Ingalls playing for the Utah Jazz has just um, given poor, um, uh, uh, what's his name from OKC? Um, I don't even know his name. He's hopeless because Utah's winning 3-1 on the back of Joe Ingalls' defence. Brandon, Australian basketball is at an all-time high and I can see it going further in the years to come. Mark, I think you've either turned off 90% of our listeners or you've excited um, 90% of them, but I'm not quite sure which. And <laughs> I know you're – I can tell that the, 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 the you're a basketball fan, aren't you? You're certainly a basketball fan. And I know for our listeners um, – just quietly, Mark also plays basketball at a very high standard, apparently, in Newcastle. And how did you go this week? We lost by three points. Ah, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Mark. So <laughs> sorry to end on a downer. Um, my my um, fame with basketball was I, I was a reasonable player in basketball um, before I stopped growing. And I remember that we actually won the Victorian Championships when I was much younger, Mark. So I don't know whether whether I told you that, um, and we ended up playing the the team that um, might have won the national championships and we beat them as well. So that's my that's my um, one minute of glory for, for basketball there um, before I stopped growing, Mark, and then um, I stopped playing basketball after that. Um, that was when I was about 12, I think, yeah. That would have been number six if I'd known about it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, considering we are a veterinary podcast, Mark, we better get back on track. What would you – so you need – you did a, a review there, Mark. You need to give it a, a, a score ten out of 10, though. Out of 10. 10 out of 10 for Australian basketball. Well, you haven't left much room for improvement there, Mark, so I would have um, um, I would have given it at least um, – drop it down a little bit and make it 9.9 .9 so you could um, – um, have a bit of leeway to improve in the future. But anyway, let's get off basketball and get on to our main topic, which is I'm going to quiz you, Mark, and I think the topic that we decided on, which you suggested, which I think is a fantastic one, is how to prevent bird perioperative anesthesia deaths or we might even broaden it to how to, um, yeah, how to keep birds happy during that anesthetic period but maybe in the immediate post anesthetic period as well, Mark. So question number one is um, how do you monitor these bird anesthesias? What are your recommendations for people? Maybe starting off with just doing the odd bird anesthetic, um, what sort of gear do you use? What works and what doesn't work, Mark, to monitor bird anesthesia? That's a great question. And and I think bird anesthesia um, is one of those things where it's a little bit Back to basics. It's very hard to stick the um, catnograph and the um, the other devices that we might have routinely for our um, companion animals onto many birds. And even for larger birds, which you might be able to use those devices, it's very difficult to interpret with the same certainty as for dogs and cats, for example, what those um, 
what those indices might mean. So we are often depending on um, uh, observations um, of particularly heart rate. But one of the things I always emphasize in terms of monitoring bird anesthesia um, is the degree of ventilatory excursions. Now, I mention this because um, oftentimes we'll have birds whose heart rate is very, very stable and their um, respiratory rate is very, very stable, but they will be progressively hypoventilating because they're not matching, they're not maintaining the same degree of um, of excursion. They're not um, moving their keel and chest to the same extent. Um, and we definitely notice if we have a bird anaesthetized for um, more than 20 or 25 minutes, it's very apparent that they uh, begin to hypoventilate. Um, and correspondingly, um, their, their uh, um, ability, their oxygen reserves will drop. Um, and, um, and they definitely have, you don't have a lot of time once they become hypoxic, once the cardiac muscle becomes hypoxic, they die properly. So I think um, my big tip, the one big tip I say when monitoring bird anesthesia is pay very close attention to the degree of um, ventilatory excursion, the excursion of the, you know, the sternum and body cavity as they breathe. And when that starts to drop, uh, when the degree of excursion drops, turn the anesthetic down. And what works and what doesn't work as far as your uh, electronic monitors with birds what do you use in your clinic and let's not jump to one of the other um, topics we'll talk about a little bit later which is the mechanical ventilation so what monitoring equipment works you know you, you did briefly mention capnograph what about pulse ox what else can you use or not use we do like to um, stick out because we're so familiar with our pulse oximeter um, we do like to stick it on um, and hear that regular heart rhythm um it's it's i don't necessarily always trust the the um the oxygen saturation numbers i, I don't trust them of course when we're doing um, dogs and cats the first thing that we do if we start to have a a um, pulse oximeter number that we're unhappy with is move the the um, sensor um, and i wouldn't want to put a number on it but in the 90s in the high 90s um, the, the movement will put the um, or return the, the animal to 99% um, after it has, you know, drifted away. Um, I think that, um, I, so I trust that number far less in birds, but it's still a useful, um, and particularly if you've got a larger bird, uh, our chickens or um, uh, those sorts of birds, uh, uh, sulfur-crested cockatoo, then um, you can get useful numbers from the pulse oximeter we usually are not you know i think you've got one of those 10 channel monitors at your practice brendan where there's the capnography the ecg the temperature all those things on the, the various streams across the, the channel uh, across the screen which give you the multicolored pictures which are um, heartwarming but um, i must admit we don't we have one of those as well and uh, we don't uh plug it into our avian patients we're just depending on our pulse oximeter to um probably more to give us that um uh you know the, the regular beat is very soothing but i honestly and, 
Uh, guess what? Um, I rarely turn on our multi-monitor as well. So we we mainly use a, uh, a, yeah, the pulse ox a bit of that and the capnograph, which you'll talk about in a sec, I presume. So, and I, and I think the key there that you mentioned in there is, you, is, is not looking at the absolute values for pulse ox symmetry. It's looking at trends, I think, and that's what you're getting at, I think, Mark. And guess what? We do exactly the same as you with that, yeah. Um, so... Jump, let's jump to the next topic about um, trying to prevent anaesthetic deaths with, with our avian patients, and that's controlling blood loss, Mark. What do you need to talk about that? Apart from making sure you've had maybe a few extra coffees or maybe no coffees that morning as you're about to do your surgery, what, what's your tips and tricks for hemostasis in avian patients? Well, my first, the, the, the thought that I have is that um, uh, very often um, it's, they don't have a lot of blood, Brendan. The short answer is these animals don't have a lot of blood to lose. I often relate when I'm talking to students about um, uh, um, we did have once a bird that was brought to us from another hospital that had had a nail clip and um, added, and it hadn't stopped bleeding um, and that bird died from blood loss just from a nail clip um, and it is, um, uh, um, I suppose, one of those things that you know a budgerigar that weighs um, 40 or 50 grams is going to have eight percent of its uh, body weight as its blood volume which will be um, eight seven or eight mils um, which means that they really can only afford to lose they probably can lose more than our companion animals as a percent of their blood volume uh, but once they get to sort of 40 or 50 percent three mils or so um, then they're in life-threatening zone of life-threatening danger so hemostasis is absolutely critical and um and i think um there's i was talking to my colleague dr alex today about um some of the things that we do um in particular we would regularly administer particularly if we've got a major surgery um, an abdominal surgery or a lipoma in a galah we would regularly administer vitamin K to those birds in the preceding 24 hours. Um, our logic being that um, that the body's reserves of, um, of vitamin K and the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors being activated and, and ready to go, um, that that process um, can be compromised maybe by the rate at which vitamin K can be um can be resourced from the liver or um, I suspect that um, many of the diets um, that birds are fed are not conducive to the formation of decent reserves of vitamin K. So we regularly do that. I don't have, I'm frustrated, Brendan, that I don't have a lot of evidence, you know, significant research evidence to prove that it's a good thing to do. But I certainly have anecdotal evidence that um, I've had a couple of lipomas before I did this where um, the the wounds were not horrible, and they um and they just oozed for ages afterwards, and they were difficult to get the birds um, to uh, stop bleeding, and they um, severely compromised the recovery of the birds. And since we've been giving them some vitamin K beforehand, that has not been as much of a problem. Are you there, Brendan? I've lost you. I wonder if you've been recording me. 
Sorry, Mark, I am here. Yes, sorry, I am here. I, I had my mic on mute. mute, so I may or may not edit that out. I might just leave you hang in there in the wind um, and, 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 and leave it raw. Um, yes, so my next question is, so what do you do in the actual surgery itself to, to limit hemostasis, apart from the obvious trying to be gentle with your tissue handling? How do you clip off vessels? How do you, how do you control any hemorrhage? Good question, Brendan. There's two things I'd mention, that, and they both require a little bit of preparation. We love our Hemoclips. Um, they, there's a couple of different brands with different trade names. Um, Ligoclips, I think, is another one, but we use Hemoclips, and they are very effective. When we, particularly returning to that um, Galar with a lipoma, um, where we are dissecting it away and we find those reasonably large vessels in the the uh, subcutaneous tissue um, supplying the rapid growth of the fat. Um, we can clamp them off um, with the, the uh, hemoclips relatively quickly and very securely. Um, so they allow us to operate at a greater speed. The, the duration of the procedure is less in their use and um, and I feel very confident about them closing off the blood vessels. I do also use um, some... Hemocell, those cellulose uh, um, wads um, that uh, you can apply to sort of capillary beds that um, that might be um, oozing. We did have a cockatiel that had a um, yolk, uh, egg yolk coelomitis and had an inspissated yolk material in its caudal abdominal air sac. Um, and as we dissected that out and peeled it away, the inflamed surface of the air sac just oozed and oozed and oozed and uh, um, employing the um, hemocell, the cellulose fibre padding over the top of that, um, I think it uh, provides a substrate for the fibrin clot to form on much more rapidly and with more surety um, and um, that often with that sort of capillary bed oozing that you can't find one single blood vessel, um, those hemocell pads are a godsend. Yes, um, and for listeners who don't know about the, the, the clips, yeah, the hemoclips or the ligoclips here, I, I use the ligoclip brand, as you mentioned, Mark, you use the hemoclip brand. Um, they're just opposition brands, and they're basically a, a little staple that we use, a tiny little um, vascular staple. Um, I think most of them are titanium staples, and they have a little cartridge um, and an applicator for it, and they're a fantastic time saver, aren't they, Mark? And I, and I know both of you. Both of us use them for other, other, um, other species as well um, for the unusual pets. So there's something to look into if you're doing more and more unusual pets. Um, with the Hemacell, Mark, I know there's a few different brands of those um, hemostasis type gels or products. Is, um, is, is, there, is, is there a particular reason why you might choose that brand or are there any ones that you find better than other brands? Um, any, any comments or you've only tried um, that particular product. To be honest with you, that's the one that we've always used. I think it comes in it comes in uh, nice little um, pads that we can cut to size. It's about two or three millimeters thick, and so um, you can use it in um, most situations. But I honestly haven't used the other ones to um, to, and I know there is several different brands, um, uh, but um, that's the one that we've had the greatest success with, and um, yes, it's uh, nice and available and. And so we use it regularly. So speaking of fluid 
loss or, or blood loss. Um, talk us through your fluid therapy for these birds undergoing anesthesia. Do you put every single bird on intravenous fluids or intraosseous fluids, or what sort of the cutoff range? Do you give subcut fluids? Do you give IM fluids? Yeah, what's what, what's the process you? That goes through your mind, Mark. Well, you, know, Bren- you know, Brendan, that um, we, we aspire, we see great value in um, intravenous access or its equivalent one way or another, and we see great benefit to maintaining blood pressure and, um, and uh, making sure that uh, we maintain hydration. Um, and so we make efforts to, uh, particularly if we're going to have a, a major anaesthetic that goes for more than 25 minutes and we're going to, you know, it's not just a, a, a cutaneous um, mass or we're going to go into the body and we're going to have significant uh, chance of uh, hemorrhage. We definitely access either the um, one of the intraosseous sites or um, uh, we maintain an intravenous um, catheter. We do tend to, um, because uh, the size of the catheter we don't we don't have a syringe driver we'd it'd be so good to have one of those little syringe pumps for this purpose and probably it'll be something we aim to get over the next little bit but um because we don't have one of those uh we find that um you know we don't have a uh it's a bit difficult to hook up the the fluid pumps we have to uh, birds so we probably are using those sites um, intermittently, the support staff will um, set themselves up every ten minutes to give a, 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 a small bolus of fluids, um, and that way we match it to you know if we felt that we've had um, an increase in bleeding, then um, or there's uh, where the bird's been a bit deep, we might uh, up the amount of fluid that they're getting at any given time. And is there a, is there a cutoff? surgery length time or surgery type that you do or don't consider that no we we won't bother giving intravenous bolus to this particular individual um i think that if we get under that um uh, 15 minutes if we're doing a procedure under 15 minutes then we will definitely take advantage of subcutaneous fluids but we might not um, add another five or ten minutes to the anesthetic to access the one of the intravenous sites and place a catheter um so We'd, and that sort of answers your question from before. We don't often use intramuscular sites. I find that uh, that um, I've read about them and used them occasionally, but the birds that I've used intramuscular sites on really um, are in some pain uh, after they've had fluids um, injected intramuscularly. Um, and, um, and so we have just depended on um, subcutaneous locations um, and particularly if the bird is not, um, you know, if they're poorly perfused and critically ill, then we'd rather have an intraosseous or intravenous site. But in an otherwise healthy bird, we'll definitely take advantage of the subcutaneous site for a short procedure. Yes. And speaking of thermal support, which we weren't, um, talk me through how you keep these birds warm. Well, do you mon- well? Let's get back to monitoring. Do you do you monitor their core body temperature, and if so, what do you use? Um, we use a. We don't always, and particularly for those shorter procedures. But um, if we are monitoring their body temperature, we use the the little um, 
so Mr. Probes um, that we can slide into the cloaca. Um, and it is, it's scary when you do it, Brendan, because these birds, their temperature will often be between, normally between 40 and a half and 42 degrees, um, and they drop precipitously if you are, are um, you know, I've, I've had times where I've been worried about the the um, organs that we've taken out or the air sacs becoming overly dry and so we'll not drown them in fluids but we'll splash a little bit of fluid around the surgical site um, and if that fluid is at room temperature or um, uh, or worse you, you can really chill a bird very quickly and obviously we know with all our patients under anesthesia that if they're core body temperature um, drops too far then circulation changes and their chance of um, their pattern of recovery changes and and their chance of recovery sometimes diminishes so um, I think it's a really important thing to try and uh, take advantage of keeping them warm and it's their small size and large surface area and often um, you know even a relatively small breach into the um the body cavity exposes a huge surface area that can lose amount of a large amount of heat very quickly. So, um, so yes, I think it's a, a really important thing to be conscious of, and to um, and I suppose the one tip I'd have there is just be aware that when you stick, if you have one of those little thermistor probes that you can place in the cloaca, um, you'll be scared when you see how quickly and how far that temperature drops. Yes, and I. I'm amazed with the, oh, the 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 monitoring device of choice for me is the Vetronics brand one. I don't know whether you've seen that one, Mark, but um, it's a it's my new toy that I got probably three or four months ago, and that works really well. It's very accurate, and it's a bit scary watching the temperatures drop with well, not just the birds, but the small mammals and, and even the reptiles as well when you're monitoring them. So, so how are we going to keep that temperature up, or at least decrease that rapid? decrease in that temperature as we have them anaesthetized mark what's and let's talk everything from high-end thermal support to to something simple that people can use if they just turn the odd avian anesthesia well i think it, it's good good to think about the simple things brendan because i think sometimes um the the um this is one of those situations where the you know i know you're a bit of a hot dog fan and um and we've got our own uh forced uh, forced air uh, warmer um, and I love to use those with our exotic patients and particularly with the birds because they are very effective at um, at holding the body temperature up um, but I do the, the forced air warmer certainly once we get into the um, the abdominal cavity and particularly if we're doing an enterotomy or a proventriculectomy to find a foreign body um, those tissues dry out really really quickly in that circumstance and so um, it's not unreasonable to maybe elect not to use those systems and to um, just depend on a warmed heat bag a warmed wheat bag or um, I tend to not use um, there once was a time when we would um, heat up uh, water um, you know drip bags uh, fluid bags um, and use those as uh, conductive warmers um, but um, I just find that uh, that those 
they don't stay warm for long enough and they can be very hot to start with. And there, there's been some literature that suggests they're more likely to be involved in burns and that the delicate, uh, particularly if we've, you know, if we've taken feathers off any part of the bird, um, their skin's not designed to cope with uh, that exposure to um, high temperatures at all. So I certainly have no trouble with the wheat bag. We use them quite regularly ourselves. Um, I'm always conscious when we use our forced air warmer to make sure we hydrate the tissue um, because it will dry out very quickly. Um, but um, watching that temperature is really important. Do you use your um, hot dog with the um, with the birds, Brendan? Oh, you're muted again. I need to pay more attention to when you flick that thing off. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Yes, I was talking to myself. Um, there. Yes, um, we do use the hot dog. Uh, but listening to what you just said there, yes, I should pay more attention not just to my mute button but also to considering using things like wheat pads or other variations on, on heating. And one of, one of the simple ones that we sometimes use is just a, a fluid bag and just warming that up in the microwave, being careful that it's evenly you know distributed the warmth by sloshing around the fluids and making sure it's not too warm. And I think that works quite well a lot of the time. I um, think the key thing so with that so. one, Brendan, is um, that it's worse if the bird... Um, gets that if there's a, a thermal window, if they get wet um, and they're in contact with the hot water, even if it's not particularly hot, that can be dangerous. So I think just being careful with uh, you know the the fluids that you might be using, the iodine or whatever that sterilizes the skin, if that runs down and forms that fluid connection, the liquid connection between the heat source and the that yes. can be bad. Also, um, the Birds, I always think about penguins who can stand on the ice and they can control who the, doesn't? the blood flow to their feet. When they're anaesthetised, penguins can't do that. Blood just flows to their feet. And if they stood on the ice, they would radiate a lot of heat out their feet. Um, and so I think um, our patients also just, you know, a little bit of um, uh, um, bubble wrap or whatever around the feet of the birds um, often provides just insulation at a point where the birds would radiate quite a lot of heat um, and can slow the loss of body heat during a long surgical procedure. Yes, and what about the possibility of using simple radiant heat and that could be a, a, a light globe, for instance, or an infrared globe that's um, shone towards the, the bird. Um, do, do you think that works we, tend, or not? we definitely use uh, um, heat lamps, infrared lights in recovery. Once the birds are um, in recovery, we find that works well then. But I've, and I suppose I would be tempted to use them with particular surgical procedures, um, but because um, we're most conscious of heat loss during those long extended surgeries where we might have uh, even the abdomen open, um, we tend not to use them um, in those situations because they dry the tissue out and um, compromise healing. Yes. And do you think another final, final one with our thermal discussion uh, the, I've heard of people using just simple hair dryers and um, sort of warmed air um, around and making I, I suppose they're making their own sort of bear hugger aren't they using um, a, a hair dryer and using some sort of balloon or or, or or pillow slip or something and trying to fluff it into there um, have you ever heard of anybody using that sort of 
process? I certainly haven't. I haven't used it either, but I have. um, We definitely have had circumstances where um, where we've added a hairdryer. So we might have a patient that's become hypothermic, that's um, come in, you know, it's uh, been ill somewhere, a bird in a cage in the backyard. It's been a particularly cold night and um, the bird's decompensated and become hypothermic and we'll place them um, on, if they're, uh, if we can't, if we need to, can't place them in a cage with radiant heat, we'll put them on our forced air warmer and add to that the um, the a uh, hair dryer to um, try and warm them up. It's a bit of a battle, I find. Um, you've got to hold the hair dryer at a certain distance from those patients because the the um, the rapid flow of air from a hair dryer might cause more evaporative cooling than than warming. The the rate of flow of air, I think, is pretty critical to that forced air warming um, and so it is important to just make sure you you know keep the hairdryer at a distance in those cases we don't use it routinely in surgery um, i couldn't it would be a bit of a battle to make that work in a surgical patient i reckon i'd be more inclined to recommend sticking with the wheat bags and and the uh the warm water in a fluid bag brendan yes with Final question. I know I keep harping on the, th- the thermal support. With the wheat bags, is there a particular formula or temperature that you try and get the wheat bag up to or, you, or you're just used to using a particular wheat bag and, and popping it on for two minutes, for instance, in the microwave? Um, we have a – we sort of buy a bunch of them at a time, I suppose, and um, and uh, the staff become very adept at um, whacking them in the microwave for, like you said, 90 seconds or whatever it is. And um, But I do think – that um, uh, you know, holding them close to a person uh, for a period of time gives you a, a good indication of whether they're going to be um, comfortable or not. Um, and you certainly don't want them, um, you know, if a person can't hold themselves, hold the, the wheat bag against their bare skin for a minute or so, then you certainly use it with the, um, with the animal. Yes. Good, excellent advice, Mark. I've learnt a lot there <laughs> and I'm still learning. So tell me about the ventilator that you use and why do you ventilate these birds? Um, well, we ventilate them for, I suppose, two reasons. The first one is that um, is the thing that I talked about to start with, that, um, that they do slowly over time ventilate less and less well themselves without changing rate. Um, and so uh, you can get to a point where... You um, you know, we try and be aware of that, but it is possible that the bird will compromise its recovery um, by ventilating not nearly as well, and um, and and the ventilator just takes away one of those, one of that uh, that those risks because it maintains the volume of ventilation, um, the 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 uh, excursion, the degree of excursion, um, very very consistently. Um, and so it's, uh, it tends, we tend to find that when we use the ventilator, we have much more stable anesthesia for much longer periods of time. Um, it's, a um, I can't, the brand name eludes me. I should have double checked before I left work, knowing that I was going to talk to you about this. Um, uh, we bought. That's okay. We can pop that in the show notes, um, post post um, production mark not a problem <laughs> um 
I think the final topic is pain relief. Our, our, our probably our, our favourite topic, isn't it, um, for exotics? Is pain relief, pain relief, pain relief. So, talk me through this with um, analgesia in those perioperative and postoperative periods for birds. I think it's a particularly important discussion, Brendan, because I, I, it's my personal feel that, um, you know, you know, if anything, I'm a little bit um, uh, generous. I, with my pain control in our in all species, but particularly our exotic species, I um, live by the motto that um, that uh, we're perfectly happy to use antibiotics on suspicion, and so I'm perfectly happy to use um, uh, analgesics on the likelihood that we're going to have pain. Um, I think there's less likelihood that will cause a problem if we uh, use analgesics in a in a, an animal that doesn't have pain than if we use antibiotics in an animal that doesn't have infection. Um, but this is one of those circumstances where I think extreme caution should be used. And it's because um, the opioids, the drugs that we like to use as a pre-med and analgesic, um, birds will often uh, more profoundly slip into that hypoventilation situation if they have opioids on board. Um, and so I think it's critically important that if we use those drugs, we use them um, carefully, um, that we use them at modest doses appropriate to the level of pain, and we pay particular attention to uh, ventilation after we've used them. Um, we always like to, if we've had a bird that we've uh, pre-medded with an opiate, um, we always like to pre-oxygenate uh, them uh, we like to allow them to breathe 100% oxygen for two to three minutes before we begin an induction. Um, and we love yes. to make sure they go into a recovery cage that has an increased oxygen tension when they come out um, because those times particularly are dangerous uh, for, um, you know, if a bird's hypoventilated uh, for a long period of time during the surgery and then wakes up um, with a little bit of stress and maybe some uncontrolled pain um, and the catecholamines spike and the heart becomes sensitised to hypoxia um, and they're not breathing well enough because we're giving them a whopping dose of, of, uh, of opiates, then that's a particularly dangerous time in recovery when we can lose them. So, so I think while I, I want to be an advocate for analgesia, I just sound a note of caution um, uh, in the the, um, the doses that we use and the the uh, and the consequences making sure that we're prepared to monitor that uh, that um, ventilatory excursion excellent now we won't go into dose rates but do you briefly want to mention some of those opiates that you consider useful um, for the NLGs well, in these I probably will just focus on the one I don't find very useful, um, and that's probably the one that um, when I talk to colleagues about uh, cases um, is most frequently used, and that's butorphanol. Um, I find it has an, a more pronounced, um, more pronounced dramatic effect at um, leading to hypoventilation, and it probably is the least effective at providing pain relief. Um, I really want to, in most uh, avian species be using a neuroreceptor antagonist and um, and so we often uh, use um, uh, morphine or methadone as a 
primary one. They don't last very long. And so a mixed mu agonist like buprenorphine is probably a choice that we would use for its longer duration of action. Fantastic, Mark. I think I've learnt a lot, as usual, from your um, extensive knowledge of avian anaesthesia there and trying to keep those animals alive. So um, have you... um, had any, this is putting you on the spot, had any um, interest in avian surgeries this um, week? We haven't this week, Brendan, and it, and, um, and it is one that I'm looking forward to uh, uh, later in the week. We do have a couple of mass removals, but it's been all guinea pigs and rats early in the week this week. Ah, so the small mammals, yes. It tends to, you can't predict it, can you? It's amazing what you sort of get in some days or one species and then it's a bit of a mismatch as well. So, look, mate, we're over one hour. So um, that was a fantastic topic and, yeah, I've certainly learnt a lot and I'm sure the listeners have as well about keeping those little birdies alive when we're doing the um, surgeries and the anaesthesia with them. And I think, Mark, it's just about time to get out there and shoot some hoops, isn't it? Um, next time you come out, you'll have to um, show me your skills there. And I know I won't be jumping very much with my dodgy knee that I've had the cartilage surgery, but, um, gee, I can see your enthusiasm in your voice when you're talking basketball, Mark. So we'll have to talk a little bit more about basketball, but we, we'll talk about that off air. Otherwise, we'll lose some listeners and some um, – we may not get some emails. Maybe we'll get some emails about people to tell us to shut up about um, basketball and talk more about vet topics, Mark. So I think it's time to say goodbye and we'll talk to you all next week. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.